My purpose as an entrepreneur, I would say, is, is making sure I leave a legacy for my children, right? I want them to be entrepreneurs as well. Not like my parents who tried to discourage, <laughs> discourage me. I know it's hard, but hopefully I leave them in a position where uh, it's easier for them to be entrepreneurs. Thanks for tuning in to the Purposeful Story Podcast, where purpose drives our actions and our actions are a result of our purpose. When you have a strong enough purpose, every action you take in life has meaning and power to it. Every entrepreneur is on a journey to fulfill their purpose, and the world needs to hear it. So without further ado, let's get right into the show. Right now, we're in a phase of the technology boom in Toronto. Um, so when I heard Andrew Brownfield speak at a conference I went to last year, I had to get him on the show. Um, I got involved in technology maybe about two years ago and I felt like I was still new to it. And after I heard this guy speak, I was like, I'm even more new to it. Andrew, he's been involved with technology from a very young age and he's gotten to the point now where he has his own company called Formative Innovations, um, with a focus on helping organizations grow by leveraging technology as a tool to make their processes a little bit more efficient um, while still focusing on like their core values. Did I get that right? Yep. Yep. So did you say informative or formative? Formative. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. All right. yeah, yeah. Formative. No, we're good. We're good. Um, so Andrew, thanks for coming on the show today. No problem. My pleasure. So I always like to start with the beginnings with all of my guests. Where did you grow up? So I grew up um, in Pickering. Um, that's, you know, before, I mean, when I go out to Pickering now, it's a completely different place than when mm -hmm. I grew up, you know. When I grew up there, we were always uh, playing in dirt, for lack of a better word, because that's all that was around us, right? Yeah. So, you know, what we used to do for fun was crazy games of hide and seek or capture the flag, or we used to bring out our G.I. Joe man and make these elaborate battlefields. We just had so much space. Right? Mm. So, yeah. Interesting stuff, man. And... You know, even though for me, when I started educating myself about the tech world um, about two years ago, I realized that like it's just it's just so big and so broad. Right. You know, even places where there's no technology considered to be no technology, there's always still little buds of technology in that field. Um, what was your first interaction with technology? Um, so my dad actually brought home. Uh, a computer. It was a Commodore VIC-20. Uh, I must have been around eight years old. And, um, you know, to me, anything that was, was new and, and involved thinking and, 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 you know, messing about interests me. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, I think my upbringing, um, in Pickering, like I said, playing in the dirt and doing all that stuff, uh, was instrumental in terms of leading me to where I am today. Right. So we used to, so I was a big, uh, biker and skater. When people hear that, they, they just can't even believe, right? <laughs> that I used to be like this crazy BMX kid, uh, or, or skateboarder. Um, but what we used to do is build our own ramps, right? So half, uh, not half pipes, but quarter pipes and whatnot. And, you know, so from the age of like 10, you know, my dad had taught me how to use the circular saw, the jigsaw and all that stuff. So we were building these ramps. Uh, they'd go by me to wood and whatnot. So I was always building stuff. Right. And like I said, we create these elaborate battlefields for a GI Joe and we build these little forts. And so I was always working with tools and with wood and everything, right? Just creating stuff. Um, so when I got this, this Vic 20, so again, it's probably, yeah, I was probably about eight years old 
And so at first it was about video games. And then as I got a little older, it switched to like, okay, what can I, can I build on the computer? Right. And up until that point, because I was building all this other stuff with tools and wood, I thought I was going to be a mechanical engineer, some type of engineer. Right. Um, but then when I started to play around with computers, uh, it shifted and said, you know what, instead of building things in the physical world, um, you know, building stuff in the digital world is, is pretty cool and it, it interests me. Um, and so that, that was, uh, that's what got me on the pursuit. Okay. So you're innovating from, uh, from a young age, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it was just always, it, always, even when I got my first car. So, you know, when I look back, I laugh because I couldn't wait till I turned 12 years old because 12 years old is when you can get your social insurance number. Oh, so I wanted my social insurance number so I could start working. Right. So I started working at consumers distributing, which was a dream job because all the toys, I knew all the toys coming in to the stock room, right? Everybody would wait for this consumers distributing catalog, but I would actually have seen everything by the time the catalog came out. So I was working at consumers. Um, I did landscaping. Um, I did, I delivered newspapers, but all this to say, I was like saving money. Right. So that at 16, I wanted to have my car, and my license on day one. So obviously you, you have to get your 365 first. So the morning of my birthday, uh, my parents drove me to get my 365. Uh, and then a couple months later, I had my license and all that time, my car was sitting on the driveway ready to go. Jeez. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so then I got into car stereos. Right. And so I was building these elaborate builds in the, you know, at a Honda Civic hatchback. And I built this, you know, crazy, you know, you know, the amps were behind plexiglass and all this stuff. Right. And, um, again, it wasn't that I was so much into car audio for the actual sound. It's just, I just loved building stuff. Right. So this, you know, how I positioned the subwoofers, how I put the, the, the lighted amps behind plexiglass up against the, uh, the fender well, all that stuff was just how I just love to build stuff and create things. I didn't, I didn't know you could work at the age of 12. I didn't know that. Is that a, like an actual, like as soon as you get your social insurance number, you're legally allowed to work. That's right. Yeah. And uh, you knew that at the age of 10, you're like, Oh yeah, man. Like, like that's, yeah. Cause I used to ask, like, when can I get a job? And my, my mom would say, well, you need to wait till you turn 12 to get your social insurance number. So sure enough, when I turned 12, that application was out and, uh, and I got that, you know, quick fast. Right. And so it was weird because all my friends, you know, and again, you know, I'm six five, right? Mm-hmm. But I didn't hit six five until I was uh the summer of sixteen. Yeah, I'm I'm just amazed at the fact that at the age of ten you were able to understand that I need to get my social insurance number at my twelve so that I can work, so that I can save for my <laughs> Yeah, I mean again, I guess that's the, the goal oriented and, and again I come from a family where my mom, um, you know, she achieved a lot, um, you know, becoming a partner of a, of a firm, um, that, uh, they, they built the, um, the water fountain, the main water fountain at Canada's Wonderland. Oh, wow. And she worked for another organization and climbed up the ladder and became uh senior management, um, that was, uh, distributing, uh, exotic aquariums. Um, so I got to learn about the, uh, the, the aquarium business, we went down to Florida, looked at the fish farms, all that stuff. So I was exposed to a lot. My dad on the other side, always entrepreneurial in the automotive sector, owning uh, shops and parts suppliers and whatnot. 
So, I mean, this is the big thing that I, I say and talk about now is the exposure. I was exposed to things that most people weren't, right? And so things that now became natural for me, like wanting to, to start working and, and getting stuff, right? Um, not for the materialism, but um, because it leads me to the next goal, right? I have a car. I got more independence. I can go out. I can work at different places. Uh, I can get to school easier, stuff like that. Um, and so one of the things that was strange was that it was, it was the, um, so, so don't get me wrong, loved, loved hanging with my friends and whatnot. And there was this issue of this internal battle between, you know, after school, school bell rings, my friends are going to play ball or whatever. Mm. And, you know, I had my paper route that I had to go deal with three days a week. Or I had to go ride my bike to the mall to, to work at consumers distributing. And, um, but it was weird because they would always like be on me, like, no, oh, why do you want to work so much at this age? Right. And, um, and, and I guess I was never perturbed in terms of saying, you know, I mean, there is some, a couple times where I ditched my papers. Yeah. <laughs> took the bundle and put them behind a tree and went and played with my friends. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, that's just being a kid, but, but yeah, it was definitely, um, different in terms of drive. And again, that came just from exposure from seeing what my parents had done. Um, just the fact my mom's from Barbados, my dad's from Jamaica. Uh, and so just the fact that they left those islands, uh, and came over here, you know, to give us, uh, a different, uh, future, uh, was like enough of a motivator for me to say, well, you know, I probably wouldn't, uh, leave this country and go anywhere else. So, what else can I do that's, you know, on par with what they did, right? Um, so, so again, I believe in that, uh, you know, each generation should uh, take the baton and run a little further. So, you know, uh, I can't wait to see what my kids do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well said. Now, you have a degree in information technology, correct? Yep. From Ryerson University? Right. What was that? Ex- I mean, I guess it w- it's obvious that's the route you wanted to take right when you finished uh, high school. But what's that experience like for you at Ryerson? Because I know with those programs, and correct me if I'm wrong, they're kind of, it's technology-based, but it's very broad. You can go in so many different directions, right? Right. So how did you, what direction did you take when you graduated? So so here's the, you know, you, you, in life you have um, certain situations, certain decision points that actually, in hindsight, turn out to be a blessing in disguise. So my whole goal was to get into, uh, computer science. That's what I wanted to do. Right. And, um, so, you know, part of the thing that happened to me growing up was that I was an average, uh, size kid. Right. And then the summer of, um, grade 11. So going into grade 11. So that June to September, I grew from five, eight to six, five. Wow. Right. And so all of a sudden, I went from not even being a look for the basketball team to being like, you know, begged to be on the basketball team. <laughs> all right. And so, and again, remember all this time when I'm, you know, from 12 working and stuff, my friends are playing ball and whatnot. I'm not really doing that kind of stuff because I'm working. Right. Mm-hmm. And so my friends were vexed that they put all this time into playing ball and then I just shoot up. One summer to six five, right? They're like, you don't even like basketball. It's not fair. Um, so I started playing basketball. Um, I think it was a grade, yeah, grade eleven. 
And uh, so when I went to school, there was grade 11, 12, and then your OACs, yeah. right? So grade 11, I was doing uh, like 72% in math. And grade 12, um, I was still playing basketball. And um, I was hovering around the 74 mark or whatever and the different maths. And, um, you know, the school system came and said to my parents that, you know, Andrew would be getting A's if he dropped down to general or basic math, right? Which my parents by this time were wise enough to say, okay, they're trying to stream him, Mm -hmm. right? They're trying to knock him out of university. Um, So that wasn't going to happen. So then I quit um, playing basketball and focused on my studies. And so, you know, I got pretty good grades and, you know, physics was my best um, course from that standpoint, uh, at like 88%, finite was up there at 86%, but there weren't enough for me to get into comp sci, right? So I didn't get into computer science, mm. which is what I really wanted to get into, but I applied myself too late, uh, when it comes to math, right? So I was one of those kids up until grade 11, 12, I didn't think I was that good in math. And then when I focused and was getting the high eighties, I was so vexed that you know, I didn't have that confidence in math from before because really it was just about applying and saying, I want to do comp sci, so I have to get my grades up, right? Um, so that's one thing I tell, um, you know, young students all the time is that, you know, math is a confidence game. Everything is about confidence. And there's a number of factors that try to shake our confidence from a young age. And you got to be uh, wary of that or aware of that, I should say. Um, and, uh, and, and just know what you need to have to fulfill your goal. So anyways, going back to what you were saying is that I didn't get into comp sci. So I went into Ryerson um, and uh, I went into uh, applied geography. It's called GIS, which is basically information technology and geography. So using technology to help with geography. That's not where I wanted to be. It was I was trying to get into comp sci yet again in my second year. Anyways, this other program came up, the Information Technology Management, which was a BCom. And I knew I wanted to start my own business. So I kind of convinced myself that maybe BCom is the route to go. And so got into that program and, uh, and did pretty well. And, um, coming out of school, um, so in addition to doing a BCom, Information Technology Management, majoring in systems development and implementation, I was still doing coding myself, right? I'm a self learner. And I was doing projects. I had clients on the side while I was going through school, building websites and all that kind of stuff. And um, and so I was confident that I could learn the technical skills. It was probably more important for me to learn the business skills because I want to start my own business. Um, so, well, you know, probably second year of university, I started working with State Farm Insurance on the Y2K bug, which was, uh, you know, everything was supposed to come to an end in year 2000 because... The computers couldn't handle the date change, mm. right? Um, but nothing happened. Um, but I was uh, involved in a project with State Farm Insurance where we were preparing all the computers uh, for that event. Um, and uh, and then I went and I worked at this company called um, Flow Network, which was, uh, you know, back in the 2000s, it was that typical dot-com startup where there was video games and there was pool tables and there was, um, you know, um, soda machines. It was just like so unconventional 
in terms of even coming from State Farm Insurance. Like this was like completely different. Uh, but there was valuable lessons to be learned there, um, which we can go into later. Um, and, and then I jumped from, you know, being in a completely tech role at this tech startup over to PricewaterhouseCoopers. Cause again, I knew I wanted to start my own business. So I said, okay, got the technology thing. Understand that I, I, I can, you know, um, throttle that on my, on my own in terms of how much I learn, what I learn. Let me understand business at a different level. So I went over to PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, in their risk management group, uh, working on a lot of, um, projects that dealt with, uh, new product releases, um, and managing the risk around launching a new product. That was invaluable experience. Uh, most of the time when I was at PwC it was only a year and a half, but most of that time I spent in the United States, I was in California working on a number of different projects, uh, met so many great people, got so much experience, got independence, right? Cause you're traveling in California by yourself. You're, you know, you're feeding yourself. You're, you're making sure that you're you know, doing everything you have to do is like, you know, coming a, a man more or less, um, from that experience. Uh, and, uh, then I started doing some more stuff on the side, job wise, client wise with, with, with the company that I started. And, uh, the decisions came that, okay, you gotta, you gotta pick one. You either gotta do your company full time. Um, or you're going to, you know, go the route in the corporate world and try to get as high as you can get. And so I made a decision, uh, at 24 that I was going to leave and I was going to go full time. And, uh, my parents thought I was absolutely nuts, right? Like, why would you do this? Right. You, <laughs> you wanted to get, uh, your social insurance number at 12 to start working, you know, and you've got a good job. You're getting great experience. And, uh, and, you know, and this is coming from two parents that are entrepreneurial mm-hmm. telling me like, why are you going through this? I now understand why they didn't want me to go down this route because despite what all the glitz that you see about entrepreneurship, it's freaking hard. Yeah. It's really, really hard. It's an emotional roller coaster, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes you're doing great. And then there's sometimes where you're just thinking like, you know, should I pack this up? Should I, should I do something else? Am I being responsible where my family, uh, is concerned? Right. And whatnot. So it is a, it is a roller coaster. This day and age, you can have a thriving business and then something comes out that totally destroys that business overnight. I've seen that happen with a number of my clients. Their whole business model has been destroyed literally wow. overnight, right? Because of technology. Um, and it doesn't, it's not, it's not, we in technology are not immune to that. Um, so anyways, I, I, I made the decision to leave PwC. I went to my boss and said, Hey, I'm leaving. Uh, he tried to persuade me not to leave, said entrepreneurship is hard. Um, and I said, well, you know, I'm going to give it a try. And he was pretty persistent in terms of getting me to try to stay. And I said, listen, um, you might think I'm giving you a hundred percent. I'm giving you like maybe 40, right? Cause I'm doing <laughs> stuff on the side. <laughs> so after I said that, he couldn't say, oh, yeah, stay on, please. Right. So, but he did say, you know, if it doesn't work out, don't go anywhere else. Come back here first. And so when I talk to young people again, even anyone who's thinking about getting into entrepreneurship, I said, you know, there's entrepreneurs who just take risk and then there's entrepreneurs who take calculated risk. I take calculated risk, right? I make sure that I have enough of a fallback plan that there really is no risk to what I'm doing, right? So even in terms of starting my business going full time, 
it's not really a risk when the job you're leaving is saying, don't go anywhere else. If it doesn't work out, come back here first. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have that, that comfort. And then I was advancing my skills so much on every level, business skills, technical skills, um, you name it, uh, interpersonal skills that, I, you know, and I had this connection, both sides of the border that I was like, okay, if I ever closed up the company, I'll be fine in terms of finding uh, a source of revenue. Right. Uh, so then I just kept pursuing, uh, this, this route, but, um, uh, but yeah, I did get some slack from my parents in the beginning, uh, in terms of, you know, why would I leave? And again, it was an early start at 24. I question now whether I would start at 24 or if I would have got more experience, um, you know, maybe started it at 30. Um, but you know, I, I did it at, uh, at 24 and funny, can I say, right? Never look back. Yeah, yeah. What was that experience like in California? Were you involved in Silicon Valley at all in that area? No, I was more involved with traditional um, firms. So like uh, Comcast is their cable provider out there. Mm-hmm. There's another one, Charter Communications, Level 9. So it was more on the telecommunications side, more traditional businesses. Like So basically, you know, helping these organizations. So they were trying to do stuff like um, voice over IP instead of the copper lines the traditional landlines they were getting into using the uh using the internet as a way of our vehicle for all types of communications right so that's powerful stuff man i'll ask you straight up what's the difference between for our listeners what's the difference between ai and machine learning so yeah that's a that's a good question um and i might get called out on on it as well um, so basically machine learning is, is not artificial intelligence, right? It's looking at patterns based on a, a large volume of data, right? And so that's why so data is so important. That's why all this internet of things, uh, things like Alexa, uh, and Google Assistant and Surrey, all these things are to collect data constantly from you, right? Even the mobile phone knows your movements everywhere you go, right? And so with all this data, they can start looking at trends or predicting trends, right? They're going to know that, hey, Andrew goes to, you know, Starbucks every Friday from 10 to 11, right? If they're listening in with Google Assistant and whatnot, they know who I'm actually meeting, right? Mm-hmm. They, they're listening on my phone calls, whatever. Anyways, it's, it's, it's about getting a vast amount of data, looking for trends and being able to predict things uh, based on that large volume of data in the historical past, right? So it's not, machine learning is, is not in real intelligence. It's just really pattern recognition, right? Artificial intelligence, which we're not there yet, is, 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 it's almost like the computer is self-aware and can change its behavior based on the input it's receiving, right? Um, and so that, it, it's funny, it's an interesting debate because many believe that we, it, it's a threat to us as humans in the workforce. If once they get, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, mimicking the human brain. And I would argue that the devastation to the labor force happens way before we get to that point, right? Because artificial intelligence does not have to get to the point where, uh, it, it mimics a human's capabilities, right? It just has to be programmed or, or responsible of doing one thing very well that humans can't do. Uh, and all its energy is focused on that. 
to actually replace a lot of people in the workforce, right? So the example I, I give, um, I just had this, I posted something on LinkedIn last week on this. Uh, someone was saying, they posted an article. They said, Andrew, love to get your thoughts on this. So the article was discussing this art of, well, this system, let's call it artificial intelligence for the sake of it, that produced a painting. That painting was sold for like 400000 in the UK, right? It was auctioned off. And the painting wasn't that good, right? Um, and uh, But it was the novelty of it. So the question was, and they had all these people, these academics debating it in this article, whether or not um, AI can be as creative as humans, right? And again, I said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to mimic. And because what you're saying is, is artificial intelligence as um, as as capable creativity uh, creatively as you know some of the best painters like Michelangelo or whatnot, right? But if, even if it's not as good as Michelangelo, it's still gonna you know you know um, eliminate a lot of painters who aren't as good as Michelangelo, right? And so the, the argument I put forth was, it's not about how good does AI. Uh, or how, how, how much does AI have to be like us? It's just how good does AI have to be to replace a lot of human jobs, right? And so the example I gave was a jet plane, right? Or any airplane, prop, a propeller plane, whatever, does not have to flap its wings to fly faster than the fastest bird, yeah, right? Yeah. We didn't have to mimic an airplane flapping its wings for it to fly. That's true. Right, we found another way to do it, and it's a heck of a lot faster than a bird, right? And a and a and a plane doesn't have to think about flying south for the winter, or raising, uh, you know, it's it's newly hatched eggs. Um, so so we don't need to focus on, you know, reassembling all these capabilities that makes up a bird. We just got to focus on we want it to fly, mm-hmm. right? And the same thing with artificial intelligence, you know. So let's think about the uh, autonomous vehicles. Right. So again, it, it, it doesn't, it, all it has to do is, is see the road and avoid obstacles. Right. Once they master that, it doesn't matter about any other capability our brain has. Once it has the computer vision down, that's all it has to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And then if we think of how many jobs are eliminated, uh, because of autonomous vehicles, you think of, you know, uh, couriers, FedEx, UPS, you think of, uh, professional drivers, you know, that's limo drivers, taxis, Uber drivers. Yeah. I mean, Uber's main thing is, is autonomous vehicles, right? I, I tell people right now that the state that Uber is in is the same state that Netflix was in when Netflix first launched. When Netflix first launched, their business model was shipping DVDs to people's homes. Mm-hmm. And you had that DVD for a week and you put it back in the mailbox and you would get another one. Blockbuster laughed their asses off on it, thought it was the stupidest model ever. But what Netflix was doing was creating the relationships with the different content providers, understanding how that distribution, uh, I guess, model works. Um, and more importantly, they're waiting for uh, masses to have high-speed internet and the streaming technology to be at a place where it makes sense to deliver it digitally. And so... While they were shipping out DVDs, they were mastering mastering the art of streaming video. Interesting, right? And so Uber's in the same position wherein they're trying hard to get this autonomous vehicle going, but in the meantime, they'll use human drivers. 
But trust me, they do not <laughs> want human drivers. Yeah. hundred percent. Because they're a business at the end of the day, right? They're a business at the end of the day. And, and having humans on the payroll, contract or otherwise, is a headache. Right? That's the bottom line. Right? So, you know, if you look at any expense of any business, it's headcount. Mm. Right? The employees cost the most. That's the biggest. All those tech firms, that's the other argument that's going on right now, is that none of these tech firms, tech giants, uh, are profitable. Right? So Lyft just went IPO. Uh, Uber is going IPO. And Uber straight out said, uh, we may never be profitable. Right? Mm. And, and the reason being is unlike before when a tech startup was, was launched, and even still it, it, it used to struggle to make money. Um, you know, the talent was, was expensive, but it's not expensive like it is today. Right. You need a team of AI engineers. These guys are always poaching from each other, trying to get the best AI engineers, the best machine learning engineers, the mm-hmm. best whatever mapping, computer vision, whatever it is. Right. So it's very expensive now to have a tech firm. This is like running little masters. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, and so, so it, it's tremendously different. I think the model is even going to be harder. Uh, you, we look at Facebook getting sued five billion, right? Because of, uh, privacy violations. That's how they make their money, right? If, mm. if, if we as consumers aren't paying to use Facebook, right? Then it's our data, our data that we're paying with. And they're using that data to be able to provide, um, you know, crazy targeting of ads, right? That's, that's crazy. I mean, even the, the last point that you mentioned with Facebook and the privacy, I mean, even before I was involved in technology, I am just, thinking like a logical person like if you're willingly putting your pictures on the internet on a for a company and putting out your information you can't just assume that it's not going to be used somewhere else oh absolutely you you know what i mean (laughs) trust me if people knew what kind of things happens um you know with your facebook content um it's crazy there there's a story of a of a guy who was uh from here who was vacationing in italy and uh, he saw, you know, like a Greyhound bus drive by and it was a picture of him for like a, an equivalent of Viagra, right? It was an ad for an equivalent of Viagra with his face that they took from a picture from Facebook. Because you read the terms of services for Facebook, any of the content you post becomes Facebook's. Mm, yeah. So your photos, yeah, you have a copy of it, but they actually own the intellectual property now, right? You transferred it to them. Right. And that's what a lot of people miss. And they say they don't care about it until they see, yeah. you know, their likeness, uh, used somewhere else. And they're not gonna, they're not gonna use it in your same locale. Right? Yeah. Because then you'd be able to spot it. So yeah, they, they know that, okay, the likelihood of Andrew traveling to Italy is X based on his past vacations. And, um, yeah, run the ad over there with his likeness. So you're saying there's a picture of me somewhere right Could now? Be. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. That's why my wife's always on me when I post pictures of the kids. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That's that's interesting but scary at the same time. But it's just there's no way to really protect yourself from that and other than not making an, a Facebook account, right? But then at the end of the day, like if you're a business, you know what I mean? Or if you're someone who just wants to connect with people who you haven't seen in a long period in time. It's kind of almost a double-edged sword, so to speak. Yeah. So, you know, I see a day where, you know, people have those things in place, but it's just to then, you know, 
ping each other or get that. It's like, it comes a glorified address book, right? Where they're not really going to post a lot of content or any content that identifies anything in terms of their positions on certain things, like political or whatnot. Uh, but it will just be that way of keeping in contact with the family and say, okay, I'm going to direct message you and say, you know, I'm going to call you tonight at 10. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, even messengers and all that stuff, they're being removed at rapid rates from, um, you know, the different, you know, people's mobile devices and whatnot, right? As they hear about the, the numerous violations that Facebook's done with privacy, they start to uninstall those apps, right? Because those, those, those truly are beacons, right? Any app, including Uber, whether you are hailing an Uber or not, Uber is constantly keeping track of where you go. Yeah. 100%, right? Um, so, so like, you know, these companies, they know so much about you. And I know people have probably heard this a million times that they know more about you than you know about yourself, but it's true. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable how much they know about you. So the only way to protect yourself from that would be to just not make an account. I'm assuming. So there's a lot or- of people. It's funny. If you talk to people who are in intelligence agencies or used to be intelligence agencies, I met someone yesterday who was, uh, who was formerly, um, you know, with CSIS. Oh, wow. Right. So I was talking to him and I said, yeah, let's, let's continue this conversation. Um, do you have a LinkedIn account? He's like, no, nah, man. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I'm not online. I'm like, oh yeah, you're, you're a CSIS. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, um, it's funny. There's this other, um, there's this, this series. I don't know if it's still on cause you know, content goes up and down on Netflix, but there's a series and it was about these folks that are, um, live off the grid, right? It okay. was like a eight or 10 episode series of all these, uh, families who are living off the grid, mm-hmm. right? And they're like starting fires with sticks and like just medieval stuff, right? And it's funny because all of them were used to be in IT. Interesting. All of them were engineers, IT engineers. And they're all saying like, oh man, I'm done with this. I'm done. I'm done. Disconnect me. All right. And it's true. That, I mean, like I said, there's a lot that can, uh, that can go wrong. Um, but again, uh, it, it, it's hard because, you know, you hear all this thing about personal branding and whatnot. And I think people can tell if you're authentic or not with yeah. your brand based on a number of things. Um, so I would say that, yeah, if, you know, if you maintain a high level of uh, authenticity, you should be able to weather any storms that come based on something in your profile. Or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. Really interesting. So I, I follow you on LinkedIn and you post a lot of interesting articles um, just surrounding technology. What, what industries um, in technology would you say are untapped right now that people don't really know about that are going to explode maybe in the next few years? That, that one is, uh, is tough. I would say that this is what I say to people all the time, right? Is that there's all this disruptive technology, right? And so, you know, I find myself picking on Uber users a lot. I'm sorry. But the whole notion that, you know, people will rationalize. So, so I know folks that are in unions, right? We need uh, better workers' rights, higher wages for folks, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, um, do you use Uber? And they're like, uh, yeah, right? And then come back to me. And, but like, yeah, but the cars are cleaner. And so humans have a way of rationalizing what they, what they want or what benefits them, right? Mm-hmm. So you might have a strong desire for people to have a higher wage, 
but selfishness will kick in and you'll rationalize and you'll say, no, they're their own business. They'll make all these things, right? And so what I tell people all the time is that the same way that Uber destroyed the livelihood of taxi drivers, there's a startup somewhere in the world working on whatever it is that you do, whatever it is that you do. Even if you're a flipping undertaker, I'm sure there's a robot being developed right now to do the mortuary task, guaranteed, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, you know, um, or at least someone thinking about it, they're, they're doing it. <laughs> really? They're <laughs> doing it. There can't be a single occupation. There's not one occupation I can think of that I haven't read, seen, or can assume that someone's working on a digital solution for it. Mm-hmm. Right. And whether that's a, a, a robot or, you know, IT automation, depending on what the role is, someone is working on replacing that human task guaranteed guaranteed mm-hmm. right and so so one thing that you have to do is as an inventor is that you may invent something it may be commercially viable in terms of it works but the environment is not ready for it right mm-hmm. so that may be the consumers and whether that's b2b consumers so businesses aren't ready to take that step or whatnot um, but trust me the stuff that you see actually being used is pretty old, right? You haven't seen the stuff that's not being used yet, right? And if you, if you look at, say, someone like Elon Musk, who says he's terrified about artificial intelligence, it's because he's seeing stuff that most people haven't seen. Wow. He's bought companies. He's bought artificial intelligent companies to stop their progress. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's that's a mic drop right there. <laughs> I feel that one in my heart. <laughs> he has bought companies to stop their progress. All right? Jeez. Wow. Um, I I traveled to Ghana um last year, December, for the first time. And that was like that was after I started getting into technology and understanding technology and the roots of it. And it's just it's interesting over there because they started off like right now you could say they're behind technically in terms of certain things. Right. But overall they're taking bigger leaps yep. than other continents or other countries because like they went from having like no phones going straight to like mobile phones. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. They, right. they can transfer money way faster than a lot of um, people can over here. Right. Right. So it's just um, that in itself is interesting too. Right. right, like it's going to be interesting to see where Africa will be in the next 10, 20 years. They right. might even be ahead Absolutely. of certain continents, right? So, um, and I know there's other, um, there's other hubs like Silicon Valley, like in Eastern Africa as well. And right. there's innovation hubs in Ghana as well. So to your point, like there's a lot of people doing a some crazy stuff. A lot of people. Israel is doing some crazy stuff. Like there's a lot of smart minds around the world that are working on a lot of different solutions. You know, and so many of the companies that you think are using American or Silicon Valley developed solutions acquired an Israeli firm, acquired a Nigerian firm, mm. acquired a Romanian firm, um, acquired many Canadian firms, right? Um, so yeah, so trust me, there's someone that's working in an industry that says, Hey, I think it can be done like this and call a couple of people or family members that are developers and they start going to work at it. Right? So. So yeah, so so I mean, all that to say, that's why I maintain this mentality that any business can be disrupted at any single time. 
Mm. Right. So, so even when we get into this notion of tax the rich, um, to have better social outcomes, right? You, there's only so much you can tax business, right? And you can point to their profits and whatnot, but a business needs those reserves in order to weather any storm, right? So, you know, uh, I'm not a heartless capitalist, but I do understand that the goal of any business is to make a profit, right? Yeah. The goal of any founder is to provide for his family first, to provide and build a legacy for his family or her family first, Yeah. right? Um, and so you got to be careful with that, that rhetoric about tax the rich um, or tax, you know, tax tax corporations to the to the to the nth degree because in this era of disruption you need those reserves i mean sears lasted 10 years on reserves right they just couldn't as many times as they try to pivot and get that business back going they couldn't right toys r us blacks photography like, tons of them kodak right mm. they had reserves but the reserves ran out before they could actually pivot and have a successful strategy to emerge right and every company's got to think like that. Every company's got to say, we need to have some serious reserves that if our main source of revenue gets disrupted by Apple or whoever, we have time to pivot to another revenue stream before we run out of cash. Mm. Crazy stuff, man. This is interesting. I could talk to you about this all day. <laughs> so for anyone who doesn't have any experience in technology, but they recognize where technology is going in the world and they want to get involved in it. Mm -hmm. And it might be a loaded question, but where, where should they start? Where do they start? That is a loaded question. Um, like, let's say it's, for example, I'll just think of a classic, like, let's say it's a nurse. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people who go to school for nursing. Mm -hmm. It pays a decent enough salary. Um, but at the same time, they're trying to dive into entrepreneurial space they understand the way the technology is moving. Like how, where do they start? Do they just start by like watching YouTube videos and just. So, so there's a lot of, so what we call transferable skill, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of skills that you, you gather, uh, in one occupation or being a student or whatever that can quickly be applied to another sector, industry, whatnot, right? And so the same goes for technology. Uh, one of the biggest, uh, fields right now in the technology space is cybersecurity, right? So everybody knows cybersecurity. They can't find enough people to do cybersecurity, mm. right? And cybersecurity uh, is not uh, all about uh, technology. It's the understanding that humans are the weakest link when it comes to uh, breaches and all these things. It's always going to be a human bug, a weak password that was created by a human, et cetera, et cetera, right? Phishing. How do you fool people uh, into clicking that link, right? See, it's a Microsoft email, has a Microsoft logo and whatnot. You know, I scrutinize these emails. It's part of my field, right? So I've got an email that looks legitimate from Microsoft and, and an email that I'm expecting, and I'll just scrutinize it. And one of them that looked that was authentic to the T, the only thing that gave it away that it was a phishing scam, and again, this is after me staring at it, was that the M for Microsoft was actually... Uh, an R and an N. Oh, wow. Right? <laughs> so that's, like, that's wow. So they spelt it with an R N. But if you just glance at it, it looks like an M, right? But this is how, how you have to scrutinize everything that comes into your inbox, comes on your phone, because 
these hackers are, they call it social engineering. They're trying to break down the weaknesses of humans. They're not trying to break down your Cisco router or anything like that. That's too difficult. They'll go to the humans because that's, that's, that's where you can, that's where you can get in. Right. Interesting. And it's so easy. I mean, give you an example. You know, good password policy is that you change your password monthly. Right. And it's some ridiculously long 16 character password with all these gibberish and numbers and no recognizable words. Right. And so to remember that you can't, even you can't remember what that password is. So use a password manager. Right. You store all your men. Mm-hmm. Right. And you just got to re- remember the master uh, password to get into your password manager. Right. But nowadays you got all this biometric stuff. You can use your fingerprint or your eyes or whatever. Right. Um, so that's best practice. And so you're the IT department. You're going into the CEO of a big bank. Right. And the CEO is like, oh, that's too much trouble for me. Right. Leave my password at eight characters and don't make me change it. <laughs> right. And the IT department is going to be like, well, this is the big shot, right? Mm. They're like, okay, we'll make that exception for him, right? That's who the hacker in wherever part of the world okay. is going after, right? Yeah. And when you get that person, you're already at the top of the organization. You've got the most sensitive data, right? So that's how these guys just that's hack into it. Okay. That's how they do it, man. That's how they do it. Wow. And, I- and, and so, again, this is, you know, another thing would be... um Human condition, right? So you can have, uh, you know, this fancy glass building in downtown Toronto, right? One of those new ones down by the lake, right? I guarantee you, even me as a person of color, if I dressed up in a suit and tie, right? And I had my sophisticated, uh, device on me, right? Underneath my cradle to my arm and whatnot. And I followed someone into their floor, right? So we got off the elevator together. They swiped to get in and I just followed behind. There's, it's very unlikely that that person's going to turn around and say, Oh, sorry, sir. You got to swipe your card too. I'm going to close the door on you and you swipe to get in. Mm. They're going to let you in. Right. And so now I'm walking around. No one's going to ask me, you know, this is human condition. Right. Yeah. I'm going to say, who are you and what are you doing here? Um, and so a lot of times folks can go in, folks are on lunch, right? Computer's on their desk. It's not locked. And you just take it and you walk out, right? And now you have uh, a certain level of access uh, to that organization, right? Um, so it's all it's all human. So back to your question in terms of how do other people get into technology, depending on what stage and where you want to start, there's careers in technology that don't require you to be uh, a nerd like I was, <laughs> right? It, 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 there's other skills that you can have uh, to, to, you know, same thing. Like you, you tell you hear about data scientists or data analytics. If you know the domain in which those analytics are supposed to be gathered and captured and report on, uh, so say you're you're, you know, you're a former investment banker or you're whatever the case may be, you can interpret that data. Right? Data is not is useless if it if it doesn't have an interpretation that makes sense or that benefits a business. Right? I I can give you a whole bunch of reports, but if the executives could care less about what I'm reporting, they're useless, mm-hmm. right? So to know the context of what you're supposed to be doing the data analytics in is important. And that's a, another way that you can come from a different career and become a data analyst, a data analyst or data scientist, or whatever word they're using now, mm-hmm. right? And that's what we were talking about before in our separate conversation because I have a health background. Yeah. 
But a lot of times the people who are developing the technology don't understand the health. Right. And that's where someone with a health background would be able to be valuable in that sense, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. We built a system um, for the diagnostic imaging. So we created a PAC system and risk system, registration information system. And so basically, you know, this was back in 2007, uh, and you're still putting up x-ray films onto the light box, right? And we were building the system to digitize that. So mm-hmm. instead of the light box, we take that out of the radiologist's rooms, we give them two $30,000 grayscale screens, and they're looking at the images on the on the screen and zooming in and whatnot, saying, oh, there's the calcification. Yeah, this looks like it could be breast cancer on this mammogram, right? Um but, but the biggest thing, um, you know, for us in terms of building that is understanding each person's role, right? To understand how much time a technologist has in the x-ray room with a patient, 20 minutes, then 10 minutes to do our observations and you're on to the next patient. You've got to tweak every part of that process, that system to be optimized for them. You can't slow them down, right? Same thing with the receptionist. Someone might say, oh, yeah, there's a form. You ask for the patient name, their last name, and blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, there's 20 fields. That should be fine. We do it in testing all the time. Well, when you have 30 patients lined up in front of you, that's a completely different story. So what we did, we were one of the first to actually get it working where you swipe the health card. Oh, really? And it populated everything, right? And it would even tell the receptionist that, hey, this health card, it's it's not valid, Right. And, and because in OHIP, uh, an organization like that would submit their claims uh, after they do the study, right, and then get paid out whatever frequency they're doing it. Uh, so if you take a bad health card and you do the procedure, you're not getting paid, all right? So we would tell them straight up front, as soon as they swipe that card, you ain't going to get paid if you take this patient because mm. the, the, the version number is off. And they used to have this process where at the end of the month, OHIP would send them back all the claims that were rejected and then they would sit through and call back, you know, thousands of well, hundreds of patients saying, you know, did we get your right health card number, whatever. Right. And so we eliminated that entire process just by them swiping the health card. That, that process was done. So now the receptionist had a day's worth of time to do something else. Because she month. probably had, or he or receptionist probably had to do the stats afterwards to see maybe, which patients registered or didn't register so that they can actually have recording of to pay f- uh, to get a billing for OHIP, right? So the, the report that came back would be that here's all the health cards that we rejected. So the receptionist, he or she would have to call each person and just verify that they got the version code right. Was it AZ or AF, right? Um, and verify that uh, if it was a red, white, a red and white card, you know, did you get an update? Can you come by with the real, the, the newer card, stuff like that? You know, a lot of times um, it was innocent mistakes um, uh, as such in terms of bringing in the right, the wrong health card or whatever. You got a new health card because you don't go uh, to a health provider all the time. It's still in the envelope and you still got your red and white card in your, in your wallet, right? Mm-hmm. But the whole thing was just understanding the process. So even here's another perfect example. So we built this system. We understood real quick that radiology practice um all everybody in the healthcare professional specialists make their money on the volume of patients they see right who controls the volume of patients they see they're referring physicians they're gold 
right? Because if I come in and I say, hey, man, I, I got, uh, you know, this soreness in my arm and, and the, 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 the general physician says, okay, we're going to order an ultrasound. Where I go for that ultrasound is largely dependent on where my doctor tells me to go. So then our focus was to make the, make an aspect of the system. So it was referring physician portal that made their job very easy. Um, and, and, and made it very hard for them to then go to another provider. Right. So, so example of that, that referring physician portal that we created. So you have a, a female patient who's in her third trimester of pregnancy. So they do that, that ultrasound and they find, uh, uh, an anomaly, right? And so they don't, they're, they're, they're technologists. They're not in a position to say what it is, right? They, they may just say that there's something wrong here. So they alert the radiologist. The radiologist can then pull up the images while the patient's still there and says, okay, I know what this is and it is a concern. Call the referring physician. Tell the referring physician, okay, log into the system, pull up these images. Patient's still laying in the in the patient room, right, on the ultrasound table, and uh, and now they can see what the radiologist sees, and they can make a decision that tell the technologist to tell the patient to go straight to the emergency room at the hospital. The referring physician is going to meet her there, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was happening just real time, right? So when you have a system like that, and the, radi- the referring physicians get used to that level of interaction and responsiveness. Mm-hmm then it's a lock that they're going to refer their patients to people using our system. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, that's not technology. The underlying code that we use to produce that is irrelevant. It was the problem that it solved or the efficiency that it created within those businesses. Mm. That's the most important thing. So in technology, the most important thing is the subject matter experts who can say, this is how the process should work. Uh, developers can go develop that. The most important person is defining how it should work, right? And so that's probably the easiest way to get into technology if you're not um, a technical person. The only thing I would say, and again, it's not to discourage anyone, and you can reach out to me and ask me questions at any time. Um, but one of the analogies I, use, uh, I give is that you look at Steph Curry, right? Why is Steph Curry so great at threes? What do you think? Why do you think he's such a phenomenal basketball player? You're asking. Yeah. Um, cause he's just good at doing one thing, just shooting and he's practicing. He's putting the time and effort. What time was and time. What was his environment growing up? Yeah. So he grew up with his dad, grew up around playing with the Raptors. Um, yeah, he grew up in that environment from a young, young age. Right. Okay. So here's the thing. We're at a stage now where in the NBA, right? The players coming up are his sons of former NBA players, mm. which takes entry into the NBA at a whole different level. Yeah. Right? Because these these kids are growing up in NBA arenas mm-hmm. with NBA fathers, right? So you gotta be someone like a Zion Williams. Yeah. <laughs> right? To to come in. Uh and and and, and so I see that happening in the technology space from a development standpoint, right? My kids are going to grow up with having, you know, so many computers in the house, servers, multiple screens, seeing their dad plug away and ask me and learn the language just through osmosis. Mm. Right. And, and that's going to be a lot of kids that 
whose parents, um, you know, mother or father are into engineering, right? They're going to grow up with that familiarity that they just understand the context of, of how all this stuff works and how it interplays. If you come to it fresh, uh, without that context, there's a lot of holes and gaps you got to fill. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but you have to ingest a lot of information yeah. to be able to really be top of the technical game, right? So in my business, I've operated data centers. I know how the internet works top to bottom, right? I know how servers, the processing, the hardware architecture, like the back of my hand, right? I know uh, then the software development. So our stuff doesn't have a lot of bugs because I know all aspects of IT. And when there is an issue, I can zoom in exactly where it is and, and resolve it, right? So my whole thing, I can get to the root cause of any issue because I have this holistic view of everything IT, right? And I wouldn't have got that if I stayed and worked in industry because I would have been put in a department and then have to be in clearance to get to the next department or wait two years or three years before I could transfer to a new department. Mm. Running my own business, which is one of the reasons why I did it, was I was in total control in terms of how much I learned, what I learned, when I learned it, um, the cutting edge stuff. Companies called formative innovations because we're always innovating. It's a challenge to always be innovating, right? Um, and, and, it, and it wasn't pegged to society, uh, pegged to technology. Because one thing in my research when I was coming up with the name is I realized that half the technology companies that existed started off as something totally different. So Nokia, for example, <clears throat> Nokia started out as a rubber manufacturer. They, they manufactured rubber boots for firefighters and, and stuff like that, right? Wow. Yeah, and, right. and they evolved into a technology company. Uh, EMC, uh, which is a huge storage provider, uh, they started off as a furniture company, right? So it became very apparent to me that, you know, whatever era you start your company in, it's going to evolve over time. So we came up with formative innovations just because it was just a challenge that we're always going to be innovating at the cutting edge. Whatever the, the business becomes, we're going to morph into that. So even as you introduced formative innovations and we're this company that builds uh, software solutions that help our, our, our customers grow and help them you know, do things better. That's all true, but we are in the process of pivoting to our platform called My Five Mentors, which is a mentorship platform that encourages structured mentorship all for the goal of preparing people for the future of work, which is my major passion right now, right? Is that there's all this disruption, potential human disruption on the labor front. And so what do you need to have in order to compete going forward? Right. What kind of mindset do you have to have to realize that what you do today can be totally extinct five years from now and most likely will. Right. And this is as, as you know, especially for my kids. Right. Um, you know, so so before when I first started this adventure, we would say, that yeah, the technical skills, you know, that's a dime a dozen technical skills. You can get anywhere You're anywhere in the globe. You can find technical skills. Right. Uh, so then it comes down to the interpersonal skills or soft skills. Right. That was a differentiator. And now I'm saying it's not even that, it's mindset. What's your mindset? And so going back to, uh, and not to toot my own horn or anything like that, but going back to me telling you about, you know, can't wait till I turn 12 to get my social insurance number and stuff like that, that's mindset. Mm. You know what I mean? That That isn't something that was taught. Um, my environment 
helps shape that mindset, but I'll compete against anybody based on my mindset. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's what I am trying to, uh, develop in as many people as I can through the platform, my five mentors. Right. And so we're turning the company from, uh, a traditional technology consulting firm to a strategic human capital development firm. That's what formative will become. That's an interesting niche. And you, you did answer my next question, which was what's next for Andrew, but you answered that, man. <laughs> All right. You answered that. As a business owner, the more you can leverage your time, the better it is for your company. There is this amazing online resource called Fiverr, where you can hire someone for just $5 to do just about any task for you. Whether it be logo design, market research, videography, or website building, Fiverr has it all. Please go to imkobe.com forward slash resources and click on the Fiverr icon to make an account. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Welcome to the Purpose Round, where we ask our entrepreneurs the right questions that really bring out the purpose behind their business and their entrepreneurial journey. Andrew, what is your purpose as an entrepreneur? So, again, my purpose as an entrepreneur, I would say, is well, there's three things, right? So, again, um, I am someone who I would say I'm, I'm addicted to learning, right? So, it's impossible for me to be in a state where I'm not learning something new. So, one of the reasons I started this company is I could control the rate of, of, of what I learn. Um, there's no one telling me that, Hey, you can't learn that because that's not the direction the company's going in or anything like that. I want full control over that. Um, so eventually, so obviously I started this company when I was 24 before I had kids. So it, it got modified when I had children. All right. So being an entrepreneur now is making sure I leave a legacy for my children. Right. I want them to be entrepreneurs as well. Not like my parents who tried to discourage, <laughs> discourage me. I know it's hard, mm-hmm. but hopefully I leave them in a position where, uh, it's easier for them to be entrepreneurs. And this goes back to what I was saying about passing the baton, right? My parents took that baton. They got it to a certain level. They begrudgingly gave it over to me. Right. And I took it to a level wherever I get to. Um, and then my kids will take that baton and go, uh, you know, further, right? Confident in that. My my kids are seven and five and and they're already fighting of, of who's gonna be the the, the CEO of Formula, right? And mm. I tell them straight, you, could, you guys gotta earn it. I'm not giving it to the oldest, I'm giving it to the youngest, I'm not giving it to the boy, I'm not giving it to the girl. They gotta, you know, they gotta work for it. Straight up. Right. So and, and, and I would just say third on that 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 tip is again uh this whole notion of um we're at a really critical time in society in terms of what we do with technology. I told you about Elon Musk getting so freaked out. He's buying companies to stop the AI development that they're doing. Um, so what role can I play uh, in ensuring um, that people have a chance at a, a you know, a sustainable career, a, a good life, however you define success. Success is not always defined or should not always be defined in terms of uh, material value. Um, so it's, it's, it's helping that. And even my five mentors is structured in such that it's not just about professional development. It's about creating well-rounded people. Um, and so I would say that, uh, that's my third is what I can do to positively impact, uh, society. And, you know, if I can just tell you a quick story, how, you know, this is kind of interesting as well is that, you know, the first, you know, 10 years of doing a technology firm, uh, I was going to church 
And I, w- I would say to my pastor when he would, you know, announce um, the, the great work that was done on a recent missionary trip to wherever, Guatemala, wherever they went. And I felt so like, oh, man, I'm just, you know, messing around with computers. And these folks are going and building schools and, and getting water for people and whatnot. And I'm a technology guy. Like, this isn't really fulfilling. Um, so I, I remember having conversations with my pastor saying, listen, you know, I feel guilty because I, I have these technology skills, but I'm not doing the missionary work and whatnot that the others are doing. And he said to me, um, Andrew, you know, God gave you the talent that you have for a specific reason. And you might know what that, you might not know what that reason is right now, but, um, it will come to you. Right. So when my five mentors came to me and all these use cases of how it could be used came to me and I shared that back with my pastor, he said, this was their purpose without a doubt. All right. This is why you have technology skills to do this. All right. And, um, and, and again, with the, the path, um, where my five was concerned, even in terms of like the trademark. It said you can't trademark something that my five mentors would be impossible, right? You got to make up a name, like you have Twitter and whatnot. So it would just be hard for you to get it, right? So you know what? Let's try. Let's try to get a trademark under my five mentors. There's no pushback from the Canadian trademark office or the U.S. trademark office, right? None. And there's like, I don't know how that didn't happen, right? But, you know, so again, when it comes to, to purpose, I think it's full circle, right? All the, 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 the hills that I've climbed, the valleys that I've rolled down, um, is, is, this is, this is now the road that I'm supposed to be on, right? And all that stuff was necessary to prepare me for this road. If you could have a conversation with one person living or dead, who would it be and why? Interesting question. Uh, it would probably, you know, not probably, it would, it, it would be with, um, with Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. It would be with Malcolm X. Because, you know, I, I say this a lot when I talk to people. In 1964, he delivered a speech called The Ballot or the Bullet. Yeah. Right? And in that speech, he said that we as a community have to understand the importance of having businesses, owning businesses. Right? He said if you beg everyone else, every other community for a job, you're in a bad place. And so when I look again at all this labor disruption that's coming because of AI, because of machine learning, IT automation, you go to the grocery store, there's, there's 12 self checkouts. You go there two, a year from now, there's going to be 16 and, you know, five years, there's going to be no cashiers, right? Same thing. You go to a bank branch and there's a bunch of iPads on the table, right? So we can talk about diversity programs and, and the importance of a diversity officer and all these things. But when it comes down to an organization only needs a hundred humans and they used to have a thousand humans, diversity ain't going to mean nothing. <laughs> they, they're not looking at diversity when it gets to that point. Mm-hmm. They're saying, I'm helping the people that I know or I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when I go back to what Malcolm X was saying, it's going to be amplified, amplified. If we do not own businesses, as a community, the employment opportunities for our, our, our young are going to be uh, slimmer than they are today. And I know that sounds grim. Uh, I'll say like, Malcolm X gave a line that, you know, I know people don't like what I say, but I'm not the kind of person that's going to tell you what you want to hear. Right? It, it's, this, is, this is the truth. 
right? Mm-hmm. When I'm around my other technology colleagues, business owners, when you hear how they're preparing their kids, how I'm preparing my kids, you realize there's going to be a major gap, right? Between our kids and, and a lot of other kids. Mm-hmm. They're, they're being wired on a totally different. A lot of people think that your kid being able to swipe an iPad is that some way going to guarantee that they're going to be, um, you know, successful later on in computers? No, it doesn't. In fact, you can do the research. A lot of tech founders have their kids going to the Waldorf school. It's a private school where you don't touch technology till high school. Don't touch it. So the kids, those are the, the, the tech entrepreneurs, the tech leaders that push all this technology down to your kids. They don't let their kids touch it. Wow. You know? And, and so when you look at me and you say, well, you know, you're in technology and, and, and you have a passion for it. Remember how I told you I started? Start playing in dirt, building ramps, building battlefields with wood, using circular saws and jigsaws, right? Hands-on building stuff. I wasn't consuming it. I wasn't going to the store and buying a ramp. We were building it, right? We were building G.I. Joe fort sets. We were building them. That's, that's the difference, right? It's not good to be a straight consumer. You need to be a creator. What is your main strategy for organizing your day? So I start my day uh, really early. You know, so it's not uncommon for me to start at, at four in the morning. Um, and so whether I work at home for a little bit uh, and then come into the office for seven, eight o'clock, or I come straight to the office at four, um, it's it's quiet time. And so for me, and this is the other thing that is an article that came out about Slack and all these messenger apps killing productivity, because when you're focused on a task and you get all these alerts and you feel a need to reply, you're actually killing your productivity because you're taking your, you're switching mental states. Mm-hmm. So I need to have huge blocks of time where like there's nobody, uh, to disrupt me. Right. And, and, and so, you know, I'll come in. And so probably about from 10 a.m. is where all the meetings start happening. Um, so whether it's conference calls or, uh, face to face meetings. Um, and then I'll get a block of time in the afternoon, uh, to do some more. Uh, work, work, because I still develop. I'm never, everybody is all, every advice I've always gotten is, Andrew, you're an executive now. Be the president. Forget that digital stuff. Forget the technology stuff, right? And that's something I'll never give up. I'll give up the president title before I give up the technology developer title, right? Mm-hmm. Because the only way that formative innovations can be at the forefront is if its executive team knows what the forefront is. Mm-hmm. And not just by reading LinkedIn posts and theory but actually works with the technology. And this is what I've seen so much so often is that people get out of technology and think they can still lead it. You can't. A year out of technology is like a hundred years out of technology. Right? Mm. So I'll come back, I'll do some more development or check on what my team is doing, how they're progressing. Uh, I try to get home, um, you know, by dinner time uh, so that I can, you know, see my kids and my wife in bed. I'm probably asleep by... 9 p.m. Um, and then I, I do it all over again for And so I'll come in too. So that's Monday to Friday on the weekend, starting at Friday night or Saturday night for sure. Uh, I might come into the office at 1 a.m. and work till 7 a.m. 
and, and go home Sunday morning and continue the day like like nothing happened. Right. right. But but that one to seven is again absolutely no interruptions, no guilt. So that's when I do my my most of my development is done in that block. Well, I'll I'll think of ways and approaches on how to accomplish something during the week as I'm doing other things, multitasking. But I'll sit down to actually hammer it out at that one to seven uh, Sunday morning, right? And again, the guilt is that. Okay, I don't feel guilty about not being with my my family because they're sleeping right now, mm-hmm. right? And my clients ain't gonna, they're not gonna message me at this time on a Saturday. So for that period of time, I'm a hundred percent alone on this earth, doing my thing. If you had to build a business from the ground up with only a hundred dollars, how would you leverage that? So that's interesting. Um, so I think one of the most important things, you know, people talk about lean startup and all this stuff lean startup only works if you have the core skills that your business requires right so if i wanted to be a restaurateur if i wanted to have a restaurant i couldn't do it because i'm not a chef i know nothing about running hospitality business so there is no lean startup if i do that right so if i started this company again with a hundred dollars um i would probably uh invest that hundred dollars and something that generates business activity before I do anything, right? Knowing that I have the skills to build whatever that $100 gets me. So that $100 is, for lack of a better term or word, uh, $100 campaign on Google, and I get a $20,000 job in response. I know I don't have the skill set to fulfill that job, the $20,000 job, and keep going after bigger jobs and building the team accordingly with the money coming in mm-hmm. right i won't sit there and for a month develop something and then try to shop it you know after and the hundred dollars gone because i i needed it to do whatever i had to do to build whatever i was building all right so i'll tell you a quick funny story uh i know this guy that uh started a business okay um and everybody thought he was absolutely crazy because he went in got a business loan for equipment and guess what that equipment was? Uh, I'm going to assume a computer? No. It was a $240,000 Ferrari. What? That Ferrari got him into the Ferrari Club of Canada or whatever. Okay. He got pure million-dollar deals from that. Wow. Just because of... He was part of the Ferrari group. And so the only people in the Ferrari group are people who have 240000 to spend on a Ferrari. So now you say, yeah, my business is X. All right. I'll give you this I'll give you this business we need that <laughs> that's crazy you know what I'm saying it's a business expense the Ferrari was a business expense it was a sales tool mm. and it worked I don't have the the the, <laughs> the stomach for that yeah to try that but I could see how it works wow there you go <laughs> which app or online tool do you use every day to help contribute to your success so I would say LinkedIn to be honest, um, uh, LinkedIn, you know, it's funny because I write articles or not articles. I write posts and I put them out there mm-hmm. and I put them out there. Um, you know, so some people will say, well, you're doing it for thought leadership and, and recognition and whatnot. Um, which I'm not going to lie. Some of that is, is true. Uh, it's a way of demonstrating that I'm not just tech that I can contextualize tech and, and, and prioritize it as such in the broader world of business. 
Um, so that is definitely what I'm trying to demonstrate when I post things. Um, but I also post things for myself, uh, in terms of, um, articulating a point of an article that I read. It, it, that articulation is for me, right? So I'm writing down my thoughts it happens to be in a post that I share with everyone else, but I'm summarizing what I got from that article myself. And I can refer back to it by going through my history and whatnot. Right. Um, and then LinkedIn also is how a lot of people connect with me. Uh, and I connect with people. Um, you know, I've, I've sent out some requests to people I didn't think would respond. And, and I did. The trick is that you just have to have uh, a personal request. Right, mm-hmm. a personal message. You can't just send off, please add me to your LinkedIn network. Um, that's not very attractive. Right. And, and again, you know, the people who, who I, you know, I usually, that usually accept my invitations, uh, and I accept their invitations. Then when that invitation comes in at four or five, because we know what kind of people we are when you mm-hmm. do that. Right. Mm-hmm. You're, you, you're the same. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's, that's the strategy. Yeah, you post a lot of interesting articles on LinkedIn, so Thanks, I appreciate man. that. List your top three most influential books. Uh, so this is going to sound funny. The first one um, is, a, is, a, is a book called Gifted Hands that um, my grandmother gave to me when I was probably about 12 or 13. So Gifted Hands was written by Dr. Ben Carson. Uh, and Dr. Ben Carson, he's actually part of the Trump administration, and he ran on the Republican side, said a lot of crazy things that upset the community. Um, and so, but the Ben Carson I knew at 13 from reading Gifted Hands was a young black man who grew up illiterate in Detroit. Uh, and his mom was on him, who was also illiterate, uh, to excel in school. And so when I read about his environment, the things he saw as a child, the place where he was in terms of academically in elementary school to being a world-renowned brain surgeon, right? That specialized in separating Siamese twins conjoined at the head. To me, it was like, okay, I can't say I can't do math now. (laughs) You know what I mean? I can't say I can't do this and I can't say... So so that was a hugely motivating uh, book for me. was that one, uh, the autobiography of, of Malcolm X. Um, again, uh, you know, I was just so impressed, uh, at how intelligent he was, you know, they would bring him on talk shows thinking that they're gonna, they're gonna nail him. And he was just so articulate and had a response for everything that was said, um, his life too, in terms of how it started and how it ended. The transformation, uh, was something that was encouraging to me. Uh, so that's book number two. And then I would say book number three uh, would be would be my Bible, right? There's a lot of things that I get, a lot of strength that I get from reading my Bible. Okay. Yeah. Tell us something that you think is true about business that most people don't agree with you on. That's a good question. There's, there's so many aspects to business. Um, but, you know, I, I got frustrated with this whole notion that um, – you know, again, going back to the, the lean startup and stuff that there seems to be this theory now that if you start your company lean, you'll somehow be, it will guarantee you success. Right. And the fact of the matter is that especially if you don't have the deep pockets yourself, it's difficult 
because business requires money, right? So there's very few people who have all the skill sets required uh, to come out of the gate and be successful uh, in business, right? Because there's the inventor aspect. So you invented something that the market needs, but you need the marketing people to tell the and convince the the purchasers that they need it, the consumer, your target market that they actually need it, and then it's the right price for them to buy. You need the salespeople um, to go out and 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 bring those sales home. Um, so so it's an expensive endeavor. I tell people all the time, especially let's say. What, what are the most common things in terms of or misconceptions about technology businesses? The biggest one is that technology businesses or startups, it's a cheap venture. It's not cheap. It's not cheap. I tell people all the time, if you don't have the money right now to go out and buy a McDonald's franchise, don't try this IT thing. Don't try this technology thing, especially, especially if you don't have the technical capabilities yourself. Yeah. It's expensive. And the amount of people I know who've offshored work and then lost, you know, money that was important to them. Um, because again, technology is so intricate. Even me, who knows this stuff, wouldn't offshore my development. Mm-hmm. Right? Because now I'm going to have to go through line by line what I get back to make sure it doesn't have a security flaw. It doesn't have a whole bunch of bugs. Right? And so if I don't know about technology and what to look for, then I am going to accept anything that comes back and then later on find that it's totally insufficient, mm-hmm. right? It's the same thing like, you know, if, if, um, if I was building a house, uh, and, and I had nothing, I just hired a contractor, uh, without doing any research about that contractor. So, you know, he may hand me the key and from the outside, it looks like a swell house. And then the first rainfall, the thing collapses. You know what I mean, so um, yeah, that that to me would be the, the biggest misconception or the biggest thing people don't know is that technology businesses are not cheap, very very expensive, and that's why none of them are profitable. <laughs> All right, mm-hmm. interesting stuff. Except for the established ones like Microsoft and whatnot, but they have a they have a a, a government arm. Right. They service the government. They service enterprise and they have a profitability, uh, model. Companies like Uber and whatnot, who they call it, uh, blitz scaling, where they just try to get as many people on the platform as possible. They're not making money. Is there any last piece of value you can leave with our listeners? Last piece of value. Um, I, I would say again, coming back to, you know, as we see technology, um, uh, you know, in, come into the workforce more and more. I, I think, you know, the whole notion of resisting change has got to go, right? Going back to mind shift, it's like you got to anticipate things. You need to read between the lines at all times, right? You can't take anything at face value. I'm surprised at how many people share things on like Facebook or repost articles. And it's like, man, did you, did you read this? Because surely you should have saw with your degrees that this is fake news. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? There's so many things when I load this page that tells me I do not trust this story whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Right? And I just don't think a lot of people are doing that. The need for critical thinking um, is is abundant. And I believe that there is a systemic, not to get all conspiracy theory, but I, I, I somewhat believe that there is some kind of um, motive 
for us not to be critical thinkers, right? I mean, the best thing you can do is have a bunch of group thinkers if you want to influence that group. And so, you know, I think that we have to reverse a lot of the things that we've uh, fallen into the last uh, the last decade with this, you know, rapid immersion of technology. We got to stop and think, mm. right? And and again, anticipate, right? When I said that Trump was going to win the election hands down, everybody thought I was nuts, <clears throat> and they thought I was, you know, an ultra conservative that loved Trump. And I was <laughs> like, no, it's like. If you understand what it's like to lose your job at a factory, and unlike the old days where you could just walk across the street to the next factory and get a job, now you're staring down permanent unemployment. You don't know where you're going to go for that job, right? The employment numbers aren't capturing you because you've been unemployed for so long. I'm saying, and your family's hungry and whatnot. Someone telling you that I'm going to make America great again. Or I'm going to go after China and bring back the jobs. That's survival mode. Survival mode is saying vote for him. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And if you're in this bubble where you're in a bunch with a bunch of people who are comfortable, they're never going to see that unless they look out and empathize with the folks that are desperate and scared. Mm. And when you look at 380 million people in America, the majority of them would be desperate and scared or have anxiety about the future. So it wasn't a surprise to me that Trump was going to win, given that message. People laughed at, oh, he's handing out red hats, make America great. That was a brilliant strategy. Brilliant. Yeah. Can't argue that. You're <laughs> right. You're right. And how can the Purposeful Story family reach out to you and follow you on your entrepreneurial journey? Sure. So, I mean, directly via email is andrew at formative.ca, F-O-R-M-A-T-I-V-E dot C-A. Um, you know, I'm not as active on, on the different social media platforms other than LinkedIn. This is a time, right? I tell my customers all the time, don't do the social media thing if you can't block off significant amount of time each day to keep that content going. So it'll just get stale and old and everyone will stop following you. So I really only have time for, for LinkedIn where again, I post my thoughts on current events. Um, so again, you can find me on LinkedIn, I think fairly easily. Uh, just by looking at Andrew or searching Andrew Bromfield, B-R-O-M-F-I-E-L-D. Okay. I appreciate you coming on the show today, Andrew. My pleasure. Great. And thank you, Purposeful Story family, for listening to the Purposeful Story podcast. And remember, live every day with purpose so all your actions are clear. Talk soon. That's all for this episode. I hope listening to this podcast left you with valuable information that either strengthened your purpose or helped bring you closer to finding your purpose. We all have a different journey in life, and this podcast is in support of everyone's purposeful journey. Thank you so much for tuning in, because without you, there is no Purposeful Story podcast. Please feel free to email me at info at and let me know what you thought of this episode. To help spread the valuable information this podcast has to offer, all I ask is for you to subscribe to the podcast via the Apple Podcast app, Podcast Addict, Google Play Music, or CastBox, give a rating, and pass this podcast on to one friend that you feel could benefit from this information. Don't forget to follow I Am Kobe Talks on Instagram for updates on new episodes and go to IamKobe.com forward slash purposeful story for more valuable content. Special thanks to DJ Anna for the beats and Lala Writes for the editing. Before you go, 
please remember that purpose drives your actions and your actions are a result of your purpose. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.